Why, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards with PureAndSimpleBible.com, and I am so grateful for your presence today. It's a special day for me. It's the 100th episode, and, you know, I ask myself, is it really that big of a deal? And I guess you could answer yes or no, depending on what the podcast means to you. But I've had a lot of great conversations over the past two and a half years of releasing podcast episodes, and it seems like it does mean a lot to some people. And so I just wanted to share a little song with you real quick. It's not an original composition, but it does sum up how I feel about today's episode. So taken from my phone, I don't know how the audio quality will be, but I'm celebrating because it's 100 episodes, and I didn't know where this was going to go two and a half years ago when I started it. It was really meant to drive people to the website and try to get them to look at study books and study the gospel, and uh, I think it's done that, but it's also turned into its own thing as well, and there are people who are interested in the program itself. They like the format of interviewing other preachers and teachers and kind of getting their thoughts on what the Bible says. And so I'm just very thankful for what it has become, what it's kind of organically grown into, and for where it's going to go for the next 100 episodes and beyond as well. I don't know if this is going to be a lifelong work, to be honest. Uh, But for now, I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to do it, and I'm thankful to God for all the opportunities he's blessed me with. Anyway, I don't really have like a planned speech that I've made on it other than that. I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for you, thankful for listening, and uh, let's keep it up, shall we? For the 100th episode, I wanted to bring on a man of great faith, one who I have admired my entire life, and uh, just somebody who is very special to me, and that's my dad. Dad is a great scholar. He's a great preacher. Uh, He's also a great father and husband, grandfather, and a great friend. And uh, I couldn't think of anybody who is more deserving to be given this special opportunity than to get to interview my dad. Now, we're talking about a subject that in and of itself is not a celebratory subject, right? If you looked at the title of it, you saw that it's called Sour Grapes. But man, it's a good conversation. It's a great study from Ezekiel chapter 18, and there's some beautiful, beautiful truths that we can pull out of it together. So, let's jump right in, shall we? Well, Dad, it's good to have you back in the studio. (laughs) Thanks, John. You you magically appeared for the second episode (laughs) of uh, our recording session, and based on what you talked about last time, hopefully there's a couple people that are looking forward to this episode because we mentioned how we were going to be talking about Ezekiel 18 and free will and a few other things. We, we kind of gave some uh, uh, previews of what we were going to be talking about today. So, Well, I'm like a bad cough. I just keep coming back. <laughs> okay. Hard to get rid of. <laughs> well, um, this uh, study that you have entitled Sour Grapes, it comes from Ezekiel 18, which... Uh, you are a scholar on Ezekiel that is far above my pay grade. But Ezekiel chapter 16 
and 18 are two of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament because of just how Ezekiel 18 for how straightforward it is. It is so straightforward. And then Ezekiel 16 because of the powerful imagery that's in that chapter. But mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to this one on a personal level because of uh, my enjoyment of the chapter. But you begin with a, a brief meditation on the cliché. So maybe you could take a moment and uh, explain to us the power of the proverb. Well, the title of the study is Sour Grapes, and that's based upon a cliché, a proverb, proverbial statement that the people of Israel were saying at that time. Uh-huh. And clichés and, and proverbial statements really play an important role in our, our efforts to communicate with one another. We use them all the time. Right. Now, I remember in, in teaching, I taught high school English, and we would do some work with clichés, but also remember that we were warned to be careful. You know, in writing especially, don't overuse cliches because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just gets too common if you do that. But at the same time, a good cliche at the right time really paints a, a clear picture in your mind. Right. Sometimes, you know, bad things happen in our lives and we look forward to something good coming from that. And so we say something like this. Every cloud has a silver lining. Right. That's a cliche. Mm-hmm. Uh, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. You've heard that one all your <laughs> life, probably. Make, make lemonade out of, of lemons. That's a cliche. Time heals all wounds. Right. That's a cliche. When you say to someone that won't do what they're supposed to, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That's an old-timey cliche there. So cliches can be important in, in our communication. Right. In so few words, you're stating, you're summing up mm-hmm. kind of a, an emotion or just a, a way that, that somebody's viewing something. But uh, you know, English is not the only language uh, that uses a, a proverb or a cliche, right? It's, oh, no. This is, no. this is from all over the world, including during Bible times. Clichés aren't new. Every, every country, every culture, every language has some form of clichés or proverbial statements that they make. They've been around a long time. And in the writing of the book of Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet deals with the cliche that people were commonly quoting during his day that wasn't true. And that's really the basis of our study. And I, I like that. I like that this chapter is about a false proverb or a false cliche that people are, are saying that really that uh, God is going to kind of turn it around or correct them on it because they, their their mindset is just rotting away mm. and it needs to be corrected. But maybe someone is listening that's unfamiliar with how it got to this, uh, right? And so, you know, they're, they're going to, we're going to read the scripture in a little bit about the sour grapes, but maybe give us some background about how the Jewish people came about to this point where they started using that cliche. Well, we're dealing with a period of time of Israel's history when they were dealing with Babylonian captivity. Even, even before Babylon captivity, there was the threat of Babylonian captivity for, for several years as well. Right. And the reason, as we'll learn, the reason they would go into captivity was because of an earlier king by the name of Manasseh. And so the people started to think, we're going into captivity because of the sins of this king that lived mm. a long time ago. Okay. Why are we having to bear the guilt right. of this sin of this king that lived a long time ago? And so through that, this 
little proverbial statement be, began to be used. Now, I don't know that this was where the statement was originated. It may have been originated even before that, but they began to use that cliche okay. to describe the time they were in. And what was it? What was the... Okay, let me read the passage. It's in Ezekiel chapter 18, and I'll begin verse 1 and just read down through verse uh, 2. The Bible says, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb, or cliche, concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. So the cliche, or the proverbial statement, was the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Can you maybe explain that, put it into some simple words, what it means? Okay. What it means, what they're saying is that, you know, the fathers have been guilty of sin. And why is it that we, the children, are treated like we're guilty of their sins? Right. Why are we in captivity? Why didn't they go? Yeah. Okay. You know, they would say, it was Manasseh that practiced all this idolatry. It was a Manasseh that caused his children to be sacrificed to these idols. It was right. Manasseh that did all these terrible things. And now, years and years later, you're punishing us. You're, you're, giving, you're assigning to us the guilt of Manasseh in sending us off into captivity. Well, God is, is rebuking them for using the proverb. So what is the proverb? You know, maybe if we could look at their mindset for a moment. Um, why is why is he rebuking them? What, what what mindset is this proverb creating in this generation? Okay, what what the proverb is 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 literally saying is that our fathers that this is just a very simple explanation sure. of it. Our sure. our fathers have eaten these these sour grapes, and that in turn has caused us the children to have bad teeth, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. Yeah, our fathers have eating sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on age. We, we don't like to accept our own faults. We want to blame others for our faults. We want to say that we are the, the product of our environment, and so right. therefore it releases us from any accountability. And that seems to be the case of, of Judah here in captivity, that the, they, were, they thought our fathers committed the sins, it shouldn't be fair for us to be in captivity. They right. should have been the ones who went in captivity. Why are we being that? So they use this proverb. The fathers ate these sour grapes, and we're the ones that our teeth are set on edge. You just said something there. I think that's really important. It's not fair. The, the, this generation was saying it's not fair that it's turned out this way for us. Um, before we, we're, we're going to get into the fairness of God and the fairness of the people that are interacting with him. But uh, I, I'd like to for you to point out how this isn't the first false proverb that this group of people is that makes in, in the book of Ezekiel, is it? Oh, no. No, there, there's another proverbial statement as well that they were making that that wasn't correct either. Back in Ezekiel chapter 12 and verses 22 and 23, God said, Son of man, what is this proverb that you people have about the land of Israel? Now, here's another one they had. The days are prolonged. 
and every vision fails. That's what they were saying. That was the proverb. The days are prolonged, days prolonged. and every vision every fails. Vision fails. What these okay. prophets are saying isn't going to happen, is what they're saying. The, the days of our destruction and being carried off in captivity, that's not going to happen. It's going to be prolonged. Mm. What's being told, uh, don't pay any attention to it. So he says, tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will lay this proverb to rest and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say to them, the days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision. God is saying, what I promise is going to happen. Right. Now, you're out here uh, spouting out this little proverb, uh, the days are a long ways away and vision's not really happening. It's failing. But God said, that's not true. Right. The days are here now. And these visions, these words of the prophets are going to happen, just as I said they would. Well, these people and their ability to come up with these uh, false cliches um, really are struggling with some big principles about God and his ways. And uh, my understanding, just on looking through your notes, is this is kind of what we're going to focus on. That is the doctrine of personal responsibility and the doctrine of free will. Mm -hmm. I love that about Ezekiel 18, how straightforward it's going to be. These people who, I guess I relate to it a lot because in our culture, we have a culture of putting things off. We want to blame others or we want to put it off till tomorrow and just kick the can down the road instead of trying to take care of the issues today. So there's, I think, a lot of good that we can get from it. Maybe you could begin back in Ezekiel 18. So we're, we're talking about the sour grapes and uh, God's response to that with uh this first big point about personal responsibility. Okay. I want to stress, as you mentioned as well, is that this is a great chapter. It is full of some really profound teaching. It's, it's simple and it's straightforward. And a lot of times, a lot of people reject it, but yeah. it's still the truth. Yeah. And, and the first great truth that he introduces here is, is what we're calling the doctrine of personal responsibility. We are responsible for our own actions. Mm -hmm. We can't blame our action on others. We have to, we have to fess up to the way we live and mm -hmm. acknowledge that we made a choice. Now this begins in verse four right. and goes down through verse twenty, and verse four records really the the idea. It says, "Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine." And then listen. The soul who sins shall die. Now, there's the personal responsibility. The soul that sins shall die. Right. Not the soul that was unfortunately mistreated or something and did wrong because of his ancestors. Right. It's saying you will die because of your own sins. Now, the death that I think it's talking about here is spiritual death, not just right. physical death. Right. But it's saying if you are lost... It's because of a decision that you made. And in the final analysis, you can't blame anyone else. Now, others may contribute to your path, but in the final analysis, it's a choice that you made. Now, you, uh, or rather, when we look at the, the scriptures, the thing that Ezekiel does next is uh, writes down an example that God gives about mm -hmm. a multi-generation family. What do we see there? Yeah. He talks about three 
generations of families. The first individual is discussed in verses 5 through 9, and he's what we're going to call the faithful grandfather okay. because he's the first one in the, the, generation, the three generations here. And when you read the passage, what you discover is he's a righteous man. Mm-hmm. He does good. He obeys God. He serves the Lord. He follows the law. And so the Bible indicates that he's going to live because of doing good. Right. Now, in verses 10 through 13, the Bible talks about his son. Now, you would think automatically because the father was good that the son would be good. Right. But the Bible teaches sometimes that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And in verses 10 through 13, you'll read that the son, the son of the previous father does bad. And in verse 13, the Bible says at the very end of the, the verse that he shall surely die, his blood be upon him. And the reason for that is because he is responsible for his own actions, not his good father. His good father is not responsible for the sins of the son. The son cannot blame his sins on his good father. Mm -hmm. He cannot say, I inherited this from my father. But now another child enters the picture. This is the third of the generation, and this is the grandson. So you have a a grandfather, a son, and now the grandson. Okay. Now keep in mind, the first one is good. The second one is wicked. And now the third child is good. It's interesting, you know, that the the grandfather was good, the father was bad, the grandson was good. Generally, we tend to follow in the steps of those who've gone before us. Generally speaking, we tend to live like our parents lived. Mm -hmm. These did not. And what the Bible is teaching us here, again, is the idea of personal responsibility. This son is not held guilty because of the sins of his fathers. Right. Now, when we get down to verses 19 and 20, you find the conclusion, you find the point that God through Ezekiel is making here. He says, yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? You know, if if a father does bad and then the son turns around and doesn't do bad, we think, well, why, why isn't he charged with the, the sins of his father as well? Mm-hmm. And he says, because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them, and he shall surely live. And here's his point now in verse 20. Here's the point to this first doctrinal idea. The soul who sins shall die. The father shall not bear the guilt of the son, or the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, rather, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. That's the message God's given to Israel yeah. and all, that uh, you are bearing the guilt of your own sins. Now, i got several questions for you. Okay. The first one, um, before I ask a question, is just a thought or a comment, and that is there are billions of people in this world uh, in especially living in the Eastern Hemisphere, who follow Eastern philosophies, Eastern ways of spirituality, Eastern religion, that is fully convinced that karma is real 
and that anything that happens to you that is bad is a result of either previous lives or your parents' lives, or so that you're going to get what you deserve. And this stands in such contrast to that, where you are responsible only for yourself and the sins of your parents are not going to come down upon you. It was so sad living in Cambodia to see people living out on the street, and the common view of them was they deserve it. Mm -hmm. They've done something or their parents have done something in a past life, and this is their punishment for it. And what a you know, a light in the darkness for God to say to not only the Israelites, but through the Bible to the whole world, it's between you and me. And what others do is not going to affect the way that we have a relationship together if you're willing to serve and obey me. So mm-hmm. anyway, there's there's hope for people around mm-hmm. the world who are willing to hear the gospel and obey mm-hmm. it. Yeah. The, the gospel teaches and the word of God teaches that that you do not inherit the guilt of others. Yeah. Now, we talk a little bit about the consequences, but the idea of guilt, you don't inherit guilt from others. We, yeah. Um, well, let's talk about consequences. But before we do, I, I just got one more to share. And that's uh, when John chapter nine, they were still struggling with this mm-hmm. because when that blind man was there, the disciples say, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way. Mm-hmm. So they were still struggling with that concept of uh, mm-hmm. inherited guilt mm-hmm. of the sin. But let's let's talk about uh, consequences, because, you know, people might get confused when they see somebody commit a great sin and it affects Mm-hmm. others, you know, like an alcoholic father whose children are suffering with the results of his alcoholism. Is there a distinction that we should maybe make about the difference between guilt and mm-hmm. consequences? There is, and, and we have to remind ourselves of that, is that while while guilt cannot be transferred mm-hmm. from father to son, consequences can. There are consequences to life. There right. bad choices that we make. And our bad choices may affect someone. As you mentioned, a father that maybe is driving around in an area with his children and the father is driving in a drunken state and wrecks his car and injures his children. Right. Now, the children may suffer the consequences. They may have a broken leg or something. They may suffer the consequences of the drunken father, but they're not guilty of his sin. They don't share his guilt. A mother may take drugs before her baby is born and her unborn baby may suffer some physical consequences from the mother's sins but the baby is not born guilty right. of the mother's sins right we, we may inherit the consequences of other sins but we don't inherit the guilt of other sins we're not guilty right we're not born guilty because of what they did and yet we've kind of touched on this already but we live in a culture that plays the blame game you know, I'm this way because of mm. what my parents did. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I guess I can say that, yes, there's truth to that extent. If you're coming out of an environment that's awful, then it's it may be more challenging for you to overcome than somebody who wasn't in that. But you're still responsible for your actions yeah. despite it. And maybe you want to comment on that blame game that we often well, play. Well, every person is responsible for his own actions. Even if you're in a, a bad background or come out of a, a very sad lifestyle, mm-hmm. you are still responsible for your own actions. We, we, we tend to sometimes want to play the blame game and blame others. We blame society for our sins. Uh, 
a child may be born in an alcoholic home, and when the child grows up, he or she may become an alcoholic, and society is quick to excuse that person and say right. it's not their fault. Right. They are products of their environment. And I fully recognize that some people have have a difficult life in front of them. Right. They, they, they come out of a bad lifestyle. I'll, I'll grant that. But still, the scriptures teach that even then we are responsible for our own actions. Mm -hmm. And people can rise above that. Just because your home was an alcoholic home does not automatically mean that you have to be an alcoholic. Right. And we've seen that in people's lives. Now, we've seen examples of where the children grew up and become alcoholics. But we've also seen examples of where the children grew up and are not alcoholics. Right. And so there is uh, there's uh, the idea of of we're not we are responsible for our own actions person can be raised in an abusive home and when they grow up they find themselves abusive as well yeah. and again we're told that that person is a product of their environment and they're not responsible for that they're mm -hmm. they're innocent they're not guilty be, be, because of, of their own behavior a child can be raised in a criminal home and grow up to be a criminal and again you say right. well, they're just a product of their environment God says that every person is responsible for his or her own behavior. You may have been brought up in a bad environment, but you're still responsible for your own life. You choose the path you take. Mm -hmm. Every person chooses the path. You are responsible for your own sins, not the sins of others. Paul tells us that judgment is based upon an individual's life in 2 Corinthians 5 and 10 and not upon the life of others. You're going to be judged on your life, right. not your parents, mm -hmm. not society, not your environment. You're going to be judged on your life and what you did with your life. Um, I know you and mom have used the Growing Kids God's Way Bible studies with parents in the mm -hmm. past. We've used that a few times as well and continue to use it. And uh, it's not perfect as far as the, the curriculum itself, so just know that. But one of the things that the, that guy says that really has affected the way Marissa and I raise our kids and that we try to tell others as well is, is that the blame game that our culture uh, has for people who are deviant, we are, whether we realize it or not, we sometimes will use that same mindset for our children. But one of the things that in that Growing Kids God's Way uh, that they bring up is that there is a universal standard. All children are supposed to tell the truth. And you can't say, well, my kid is just really precocious, and so we're just going to let him get away with lying. We, we recognize that, that there's a standard. And the kids may be different. You may have a, a kid who's really quiet or a kid who's a spaz or a kid who's super athletic or a kid who's an introvert. They all have different personalities, but the standard is always the same for the kid. And so getting them to that standard might be a little bit different as far as getting an introvert versus an extrovert to, you know, accomplish the task, but we don't change the standard. Mm -hmm. the, the kids have to come to know it. And so the same as, I guess, there's my hoorah moment for moms and dads out there to raise mm -hmm. their kids right. But in connection to this, we have to realize that we're responsible for our own actions whether it's kids growing up or us as Christians. However, in your notes, uh, you know, we've talked for a couple uh, minutes about consequences, but let's talk about guilt, right? Because uh, we've, you've, you've made the point from uh, 
Ezekiel 18, that inheriting the guilt of another person's sin is not uh, what God has in mind here, yet we know of probably millions in various denominational groups that would say the opposite. So can you comment on that for a moment? Well, there, there are many in the denomination world that teach some form of original sin. I'm not saying they all teach the same thing, the same exact uh, doctrines of it, but they, they may teach some form of it. And, and one of the ideas of original sin is that somehow the guilt of Adam and Eve's sin is passed down from generation to generation. It's the idea, if you want to put it this way, that in some way we're born guilty of sin. We're born with some depraved nature. Well, this depravity of man is a part of a doctrine that's called Calvinism. And Calvinism is a dangerous doctrine that, that Christians should avoid. Basically, it says that man is born to some degree guilty of Adam's uh, sin. And from that consequence, then, God has unconditionally elected those who are going to be saved and lost. And if that's the truth, then, then atonement wasn't made for everybody. If God has predetermined who's going to be saved or lost, and atonement right. then would only be for the elect, and hence it would be limited, the idea of limited atonement. And if that's the case, then it would require the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit to to free man from his sins. It's not a choice that man can make. The Spirit has to miraculously do it, and it's called the irresistible movement of the Spirit. And finally, if this is the truth, then the elect, you know, those who have been chosen, can never be lost. Well, that's that's a little capsule version of of uh, Calvinism, and it all begins with the idea right. that somehow you're born with some taint of Adam's sin, and that that's inherited, that guilt somehow is inherited. Right, so if, th- if this is the foundation of that system of doctrines of, that we call Calvinism, yeah. if this is the foundation, if we could shake it loose, you know, if we could have people come to understand what the scriptures teach about how we're born, what nature we have, then those other ones would crumble if we could prove mm-hmm. it wrong. So maybe could you share some scriptures with us that show the nature of man, of each man? Well, the scriptures point out that man, when he enters into this world, enters in in a pure stage, a safe stage. Okay. In Hebrews 12, verse 9, the Bible says, Therefore, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. How uh, shall we uh, not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and lives? Now, we are told that God is the Father of spirits. Now, if we are born into this world guilty of sin to some degree, and God is the Father of our spirits, does that not point back to God? Does that not say something about God's behavior as well? But on the other hand, if God is the father of spirits, then it would indicate that when we come into this world, we are you know, a product of being God being the father of our spirits. In other words, we yeah. come in in a pure condition, a safe condition. We come into this world like a blank piece of paper, having not done right or wrong. In Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29, Truly this I have found, God made man upright, but they sought many schemes. Paul would say in Romans 7, verse 9, I was alive once without the law, 
that is, before he reached what we call the, the age of accountability. I was alive without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. There was a time in Paul's life when he was right with God yeah. as a child, and he was not sinful. Deuteronomy 1, 39 says, Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. They had no knowledge of good and evil, these babies mm-hmm. and these smaller children. That's the way God saw them. Again, like a blank, white piece of paper. They had no knowledge of good and evil. They would have to learn good and evil, for that matter. In Matthew 18, and verse 3, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you be converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if little children are born guilty of Adam's sin, then that sounds like a, a difficult passage to harmonize. Then. Right. Jesus said, you've got to become like these little children. Well, these little children are born guilty of Adam's sin. Yeah. So this doctrine says. Yep. But it, Jesus seems to be teaching the opposite, that if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you're going to have to become like these children who obviously have no sin. Mm-hmm. I read a book um, about family shepherding, you know, the, just the idea of being a shepherd in your home. And it was written by a Calvinist. And so one of the subheadings of his chapters about sharing the gospel with your children was a uh, viper in a diaper. <laughs> <laughs> and he was making, sadly, the case that from the, as early as possible, you need to tell your children that they're a rotten sinner and they mm. need to be saved because they carry within themselves the, you know, uh, the the spiritual disease that that Adam gave them. Um, Dad, I agree with every scripture that you just read, but if a Calvinist was listening to this, I'm sure they would have some scriptures that they would want uh, to throw back at you, and maybe they'd say, yeah, but... And so what I'd like to do is share two of them, and I know you're not, uh, you don't have any prepared response for this, but I'd like to hear what you would say to Psalm chapter 51. And so I'll read it to you. Um, I think this is probably the one I've heard quoted the most, and it's probably the one where its language, if it's taken literally, would make the strongest case for a baby being born in sin. So this is what David says. Uh, in verse, uh, let's see, verse, I'll verse read five. verse 5 and 6. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And I'll just, let's just quote that. Um, so a Calvinist might use that to say, obviously, the, the Bible's showing here that we're born in sin. Mm-hmm. So what would you say in response to that? Well, the first thing I would say is that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And right. so one verse is not going to say you're born innocent and another verse say you're guilty of sin. Our understanding of one or both of those verses can be incorrect, but the verses themselves don't contradict one another. That's a good point. And I think that we've learned from from our study, these previous scriptures, and, and you know, there's more than just one of them. There's several of them that bring forth the idea of personal responsibility, that guilt cannot be inherited and that we're born as the fathers of spirit. Now, in looking at the story of David, there are different ways of explaining this passage, and I'll just mention one. There, you know, Our listeners may know of others or think of others, but I'll mention one that I think is a good possibility. 
And that involves a figure of speech called hyperbole. Uh-huh. Hyperbole is an exaggeration for emphasis. Right. And all. And that seems to be what David is doing here. First of all, the context of the psalm seems to be referring back to the time after his sin with Bathsheba. Right. And the terrible sin. The 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 enormity of that sin has just overwhelmed David. Right. He's just completely ashamed and beaten down because of the sin. And as a human, he's saying, in a sense, I was just born a sinner. I'm so bad, I was born a sinner. I don't think that he means that, literally, but this is the human nature of him describing his situation, that that I'm just, I'm so bad. I can't believe how bad I am. You know, I wished I'd never been born in situations like right. that. We, we say things in moments of hyperbole that we, we really don't necessarily mean. Mm-hmm. But we're so overwhelmed that this human response just kind of flies out. I agree with that 100% uh, about hyperbole. And if I could just add one thought, it would be because David was such a gifted poet, he uses figurative language to help express uh, what's literally going on. But look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Uh, Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Do we take those literally? Did did he literally get uh, purged with hyssop? Did did God literally break his bones? We obviously see the hyperbole Mm -hmm. in that of a man who is racked with guilt because Mm -hmm. of his sin. And so that helps me make peace with this scripture in addition to what you said about uh, I, I also need to look at the other overwhelming body of evidence of scriptures that plainly teach that we're responsible for our own sin, while this one's figuratively teaching how awful his sin was. If if one scripture seems to contradict a whole slew of scriptures, yeah, then maybe what we need to stop and do is look at that one scripture and ask ourselves, have I put a, a wrong interpretation upon it? Mm. Am I trying to take this out of its context and make it mean something mm-hmm. that it doesn't? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the case here because the overall teachings, again, of the scriptures is that we are born innocent yeah. and safe. Yeah. Well, let me just do one more. We're kind of spending a little bit more time on this than maybe the notes show. But uh, I want to read from Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Um, I had read several sources for uh, this topic and uh, in a book that I read called Are Men Born Sinners? This was one of four scriptures that Calvinists turned to more than any. And so in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, and I'll pause there. The reader might, or the person listening might have heard that just from my inflection that the sentence isn't complete. But a Calvinist often looks at that verse and says, obviously, we all are born in sin because this scripture says that sin came through one man and it spread to all men because all have sinned. Uh, so this is talking about original sin. This is that total depravity. Uh, what would you say about this verse, Dad? Well, first of all, I'd say you probably need Alan Bonifay here to <laughs> explain this because he is well studied in the book of Romans. Okay. And 
especially that. And so I'm sure that I can't, I can't explain it in a way that he could have. But one thing that, that strikes me is the fact that it says, through one man, sin entered the world. Right. And all. I don't know that you can just take that expression itself and say that through one man, sin entered the world and say that it means everybody has become a sinner and inherited that man's sin. It's like saying, you know, through this door, someone entered the world and all, you know. And it's saying, in a sense, that through Adam, he opened the portal, right. in a sense, that allowed sin to come into the world. Right. But we know from other scriptures, from Ezekiel 18, that uh-huh. we're studying, that sin is not inherited. Guilt is not inherited. And also to try to take this passage and, and lay the blame at the feet of Adam and say that we're sinners because of Adam. We inherit Adam's sin. Original sin is true. Is to to misunderstand what he's trying to say there. I agree, I agree, and not only that, but you know, if you just keep reading, a lot of times these problems work themselves mm-hmm. out. And so when people will quote, I mean, when when I read that, I only quoted half the the sentence. You know, it it continues on, but later in the uh, the scripture, uh, look at verse eighteen. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So the, its natural conclusion is all men may be born in sin, but all men will be saved. Mm-hmm. Nobody agrees with mm-hmm. that. I don't, mm-hmm. except for a universalist, and that's maybe for another day. But yeah. uh, a Calvinist is going to have to concede that all men will be saved if they follow their own logic, but they won't. Yeah. And so the 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 answer from that is you got to put qualifiers on it. Yep. All sinned who are capable of sin and all are saved who accept God's grace through faith. Exactly. And uh, anyway, so thank you for going on this little, this little exercise with me. Well, I can breathe the sigh of relief because I didn't know what you were going to ask <laughs> and I thought, "Oh, I may be on the spot here." <laughs> that's my that's the whole purpose of this podcast. Hmm. Put preachers on the spot and hmm. put make them sweat. Well, now that I've put Dad on the spot, we're going to pause right there and come back for the 101st episode where we complete this conversation about sour grapes next week, the Lord willing. Now, I want to share something about my dad. I've already bragged about how great he is in the introduction, but in this outro, I want to share something special from behind the scenes. You see, I'm a one-man operation, so I'm the host, but I'm also the sound engineer and the producer and everything else. And especially as the the guy who's the editor, I appreciate a good long take where I don't have to do any editing. And uh, sometimes I have to do a lot of editing because of the uhs and the ums and people taking a moment to think about the question. I'm not upset about it. It's, uh, It's helpful for them. And whenever people come in the studio, I always tell them, I'll edit out anything that we don't want. And the best version of our conversation will make the final cut. Well, I want to tell you about the amount that made the final cut. And it was all of it. The conversation that I just had with Dad was one take. No stops, no cuts, no removing of uhs or ums or anything. And you know what? There may have been a little bit here or there that I could have dusted up. But I left it in uh, because it really kind of flowed all the way through very well. And it was just an amazing opportunity as the editor looking at this at the end of 
uh, what is it, 35 minutes together? End of 35 minutes, being able to record straight through and not having to go back and clean anything up. So great job, Dad. Well done. You need to come back next week. You want to hear the end of Sour Grapes and continue this great study in Ezekiel chapter 18. Until then, you can go to the website, and I invite you to go check out all the resources that are there for you to download and use absolutely free. Until then, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.